You're listening to a podcast from Catalyst Vineyard Church, Aberdeen. You can find out more about our church, as well as more talks on our website, catalyst.fin. My name's Chuck. Uh, I am, well, one of the leaders of the church. And, and if you're visiting, you maybe don't know, but it's our practice to just kind of teach our way through books of the Bible We've been in the Book of Acts since 1963 or something like that. It just, just feels like that. Uh, and today is going to be our last opportunity to dig into the Book of Acts before we move on to looking at John's Gospel in some detail. Um, and we've seen some absolutely epic moments in the, the, the story of the Book of Acts. You know, we, we've seen exactly why it's called the Acts of the Apostles, because a bit like X Factor does, you know, following people's journey. We've followed their journey from these timid and fearful disciples, uh, praying and just waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And then we've seen uh, God do remarkable things through them. And, and uh, you know, they've been planting churches, preaching the gospel, leading people to Jesus, uh, all against this backdrop of intense intimidation and persecution and opposition uh, and so it's been brilliant to see their story and it's also you know some people they say well yeah it is called the acts of the apostles but also it's called the acts of the holy spirit or some people refer to it like that and and we've seen exactly why the holy spirit the spirit of jesus has been present all the way through the story um, and so we've seen uh, all kinds of remarkable miracles, people being raised from the dead, demons cast out, uh, tongues of fire, buildings shaking, all those kinds of things. And now we've arrived at one of the most bizarre passages in the whole of the Bible. And uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be a really interesting moment for us today. And so I'm going to read from Acts chapter 20 and I'm going to read from verse 7. It says this. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. And that is God's word to us today. Unusual passage, isn't it? So the question is, what are we going to do with that passage? Like in what sense is that slightly random moment in the life of the early church God's word to us today? And it's one of the reasons why I absolutely love just working our way through books of the Bible because, um, you know, there are some things that are just so obvious and so easy to apply to our lives that in one sense I could just stand here and I could just read them out and then we'd all just stand there and say, you're right, I know, I know, I know, I know. And then we would, you know, we could just pray for each other and that, and that could be it. But this is something that just takes a bit more consideration and a bit more thought, but it is no less God's word to us. And, and so for me, the, the question that we should perhaps ask when we come across difficult passages like this is, 
why is this passage in the Bible? Like, why is it there? Luke, who wrote this book, he's already told us in Luke chapter 1, which is like the first volume of his two-volume work, the book of Luke and then the book of Acts, he's already told us that he's carefully investigated everything that happened in the life and ministry of Jesus and then the life and ministry of the early church. And then he said, I've, I've put it into an orderly account uh, and uh, it's really obvious that, that he's kind of giving us a, an edited highlights, a kind of a... Um, you know, just the very important things that he wants us to take away. Because, for example, there are moments where he says, well, we were there for three years and, and, and you just get a few sentences. And then other moments are just like a passing moment, but you get a whole uh, big chunk of scripture. And so there's a whole passage of this book that is dedicated to a moment where the Apostle Paul talked on and on and on uh, and until some young guy falls out of the window and dies. And so our question, why is this in the Bible, is really important. And what I want to do today is to uh, share, share my working and the answers that I've come up with. They may not be your answers. I'd love to hear from you. You know, uh, this is such a strange thing in a way that I'm speaking into the internet uh, but I'd love for the internet to speak to me. And so if, you, if you've read this passage or if you want to study this passage a bit over the next few days and then come back to me with what you think uh, is the answer, then I'd love to hear it. Why is this passage in the Bible? Well, I think three reasons. The first thing is he's telling us something about the Apostle Paul. And what I think he's telling us is that he was no superhero. In fact, I think he's telling us that there's no such thing as a superhero in the church. I think he's telling us that in the entire history of the Christian church, uh, uh, everyone is imperfect. There's no one who's flawless or unapproachable. Uh, no one who's perfect, in fact, except for Jesus. I think that's what he's trying to tell us. All the way through his account, all the way through Luke's gospel, all the way through the book of Acts, Luke is telling us that the people who have been closest to Jesus along the way uh, are people who often get it wrong. So, for example, there's Simon Peter, you know, the one, on this rock I'll build my church. You might think, well, surely he wouldn't get it wrong. Well, the very first time he meets Jesus, uh, you, you would think that his response should be, I'm going to hold on to you, Jesus, and I'm never going to let you go. And in fact, what he actually says is, go away which is ridiculous, isn't it? Or John the Baptist. John the Baptist's entire job is to be the warm-up act for Jesus. His entire job is to say, that there is Jesus. And, and yet what actually happens is that when Jesus has been on the scene for a little while, John the Baptist sends, some, sends a delegation of people to go and speak to him to say, uh, can I just check, are you the one we're expecting or should we expect someone else? Or when Jesus... Uh, is always talking about sacrifice and how uh, following him is about laying down your life and denying yourself and all these kinds of things. Uh, and, and yet Luke records that the disciples are always asking the question, so which one of us is like the greatest? Which is obviously an exercise in missing the point. Jesus, when he tells the disciples that he's going to the cross, they're, they're absolutely horrified. Uh, but also Luke specifically records that no one understands what he's telling them 
and all of them are too afraid to ask. Do you see, he's recording over and over again these people who are part of the deal right at the start. They're, just, they're not superheroes. They're ordinary people just like us. It's as if Luke is concerned that as the generations pass by, his document uh, it has a role to play in making sure that people understand that Jesus is the one to whom we should give all of our affection. You know, he's obviously concerned that over the generations, people will start to deviate. They'll start to say, oh, uh, I'm going to worship Peter. I'm going to worship Paul. I'm going to give my affection to Timothy. And he's like, no, 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 you don't want to do that. Let me tell you, they're just ordinary people. That's his plan. I've been so struck by, uh, well, you know, the, the death of the queen and, and everything that happened around the death of the queen and, and the public response to the death of the queen, which is remarkable. And I, I don't know about you, but I just think, oh, Lord, what are you doing in our society in this moment? You know, with all of the crises, the perma-crisis, all of these things that are happening, and yet there's a, a response, a, a kind of a spiritual almost response to that situation. Um, but one of the other things that struck me about it was that the, uh, you know, on the, as soon as the Queen died, they cancelled all BBC TV and instead they just had these talking heads just talking about the Queen. And, and they would have people who knew the Queen pretty well and, and they would say, so what can you tell us? And they would say, well, you know, let me tell you, she really loved her corgis and she really loved her racehorses and she really loved Balmoral. She really loved Scotland. And then it was like they'd run out of things to say. And they'd, start, they'd just start again. Well, of course, she really loved their corgis and her racehorses. She really loved Balmoral. Loved Scotland. And it, it, just this, it just occurred to me, oh, my goodness, we know hardly anything about this lady who's been in the public eye for nearly a century. It's like we have this, because she was a private person, we have a very two-dimensional view of who she was. And yet... Luke is deeply uninterested in painting a two-dimensional picture of the Apostle Paul. He's painting us a three-dimensional picture. He's telling us what he was really like. And so, yes, he's telling us that, that the way that Paul raised um, Eutychus from the dead was very, very similar to the way that, that uh, Peter raised somebody from the dead in Acts chapter 9 or, or the way that Jesus, in fact, raised people from the dead in Luke chapter 7 and 8. He's telling us this is a remarkable guy with a real uh, uh, charismatic gift for healing. That's certainly true. He's also telling us that, that the way, the method that Paul used to raise Eutychus from the dead, what did he do? He said he laid on top of him, uh, which is really, really similar to the way that Elijah laid on top of the widow of Zarephath's son in 1 Kings 17. And so he's telling us something about the kind of prophetic nature of Paul's ministry. But as well as all of those things, he also says in verse 9 of our passage that Paul was talking on and on and on. Uh, and it just reminded me of the way that Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, he says about the Apostle Paul, he says, yeah, he writes some... Letters that are, to be honest, really hard to understand. It's like the whole of the Bible is saying, Paul, great guy, remarkable leader, just really human. And in fact, 
in, at moments, really ordinary. And so he's recording that he talked on and on and on. And uh, then he tells us uh, in verse 7, you know, what, what, what did it say was the reason why they came together? Chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Right, so everyone's coming there. I don't know whether it started on a Sunday morning or perhaps it was a Sunday evening service, but they've come together. Their in, entire plan is we're going to eat together. We're going to break bread. So, they, you know, they've maybe skipped lunch. They're kind of, oh, I'm going to make sure I've got plenty of room to, uh, ready for the meal. And then the Apostle Paul talks on and on and on till beyond midnight. Eutychus falls out of the window. Uh, he gets raised from the dead. And then finally, in verse, where is it? Verse 11. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. Uh, it's just like the worst scenario you can possibly imagine. It's a bit like when you go out for dinner. You know, you've got a big family occasion. The waiter comes. They bring all of the food out. It's all sat there. And then Uncle Graham insists on saying grace. And Uncle Graham's grace goes on and on and on. And you're all like, read the room, Uncle Graham. We're all starving, Uncle Graham. Will someone please assassinate Uncle Graham? We're all, we all want to eat. Like the Apostle Paul, he, he couldn't read the room. He's making them all wait for hours and hours and hours to eat. And Paul's, uh, Luke's recording all of these things deliberately. Why? Because he wants to say, amazing guy. You know, the Lord did extraordinary things through him, seemingly impossible things. But he was also imperfect. And Luke records that all the way through. God does seemingly impossible things through imperfect people. And if that's true, which I believe it is, then maybe we can take that home for us today, that the Lord might want to use us. We're very aware often of our own imperfections, of our own failures, our own faults. We, we think, goodness me, the Lord would never use me because, because, I mean, I know what I'm like. And Luke would say, yeah, but I knew what the Apostle Paul was like, and you should see what God did with him. So he's telling us something about the Apostle Paul. Secondly, I think he's telling us something about Eutychus, and I think what he's telling us is it wasn't his fault. It wasn't his fault. I don't know whether you've ever fallen asleep at a really inappropriate moment. When I was about 19, I think it was, I won a competition uh, and I won a holiday to Florida. And I went with my friend to Florida for free. It was awesome. And, and when we got on the plane, like the truth is I hate flying. And, and I, this was like maybe the second time I'd flown in an aeroplane in my entire life. So I hadn't slept for days. I was exhausted. I could hardly open my eyes. I got on the plane. I sat in between my friend on one side and this man mountain on the other. He was about six foot eight. He didn't have a neck. His muscles were barely constrained by his rugby shirt. He took up all of his seat and most of mine. And so we, we, we sat on a, on a plane. The plane took off. They brought around food and drink and all of that. And then I could just feel, I was trying to watch a film, but I could just feel my eyelids just getting heavier and heavier, and I fell asleep. And then sometime later, I woke up with my head on this guy's chest. And, and um, I looked up at him, and he looked down at me. It was the most awkward moment of my life, I think. 
and then I just, just gently just remove my head like that from his chest and I left this trail of spittle that came from my mouth and just rested on his rugby shirt. It was super embarrassing. And so I'm, I've got every sympathy with poor Eutychus there, falling asleep as the Apostle Paul talked on and on. Scholars think that maybe uh, this is around the time that he wrote the book of Romans and so maybe he's sharing all of his insights that he's written down for the Romans and... Um, uh, and he's fallen asleep. And, you know, when you come across a passage of the Bible that is hard to understand, uh, it's really helpful to have something like a study Bible or some Bible commentaries or to go on BibleGateway.com, which is a really helpful resource, uh, to try to just understand what's really going on. And, and when I looked at some of that stuff about this passage, a whole bunch of the guys really went in hard on Eutychus. So they said, Eutychus, bad person. Don't be like bad Eutychus. They said, well, you know, in Luke's gospel, uh, his has a real theological significance on the night and the darkness. And, and, you know, he records specifically that, that the disciples, they're always falling asleep when they should be awake. You know, he, he's the only one who records that they fell asleep on the Mount of Transfiguration. He records that they fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're always falling asleep. And, and their, their physical sleep is kind of symbolic of their spiritual malaise and, and uh, you know, lack of awareness. They need to be wide awake, when, uh, you know, and, and instead they're asleep. As opposed to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 16, it's midnight, just like it is in this passage. It's midnight, he's there with, is it Silas, I think? They're in prison and, and they're not asleep. No, 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 they're wide awake and they're singing songs, worship songs to Jesus. Be like Paul and Silas, don't be like bad Eutychus, is essentially what the, the commentators are saying. And I think they've completely missed the point. Because for me, what is the plain meaning of this text? It seems really, really obvious to me that Luke is, and I wonder if it's obvious to you, that Luke is explaining all of the mitigating factors here. He says it, it's midnight. He says it, they're in an upper room. He specifically records that there are many lamps in the upstairs room, which presumably is, is he's trying to tell us that it's like smoky and hot and, and airless in the room. And he tells us that Paul goes on and on and on. And so, so in one sense, I, I think Luke's trying to say, like, this could have been any of us. Like, you know, poor Eutychus just happened to be the one who was in the upstairs window. But any one of us have, could have fallen asleep in that situation. And then, really helpfully, uh, uh, the late, great John Stott comes to our aid. And, and what John Stott says is, he says, what you need to understand is, is that the, word, the Greek word that's translated as young man in verse 9 is only really used there in verse 9. But in verse 12, there's another word that is also translated in our Bible as young man, and, and it's the Greek word pace. And the Greek word pays is usually used to describe a young boy between the age of 8 and 14. He's just a kid. He's a child. And so Luke's saying, here's a group of adults in an upstairs room at midnight. It's stuffy, it's dark, it's airless. Nobody thought about the young kid sitting in the window Nobody even thought to close the window or whatever the ancient equivalent was. And so he fell asleep and he fell out of the window. It, was, it wasn't his fault. And I, I mean, what do we do with that? 
how do we apply that to our lives? I, I, I think there's a bunch of things that we can do, but one of the things we could do is to say, goodness, thank, thank, thank God, literally, for the people who serve our children week in, week out. Because the last thing you want is for our children to have to sit and listen to a bunch of adults just drone on and on and on when we speak about faith, speak about Jesus. Way better to, to have a group of people who are willing to give their best time, their best energy, their best prayers to serving our children, speaking their language, introducing them to Jesus in a way that they can understand and engage with and setting them off on the path that they will go for the rest of their lives. And so I just want to say this. If you've ever served our children, if you've ever given your best prayers, your best energy, your best time, to putting on a yellow T-shirt or whatever the color of the T-shirt was at the time and serving our children as they uh, go on an, a, a journey with Jesus. Thank you so much. It makes a massive difference. You know, there was some research that was done uh, uh, where they asked a whole bunch of adult Christians, like, when did you come to faith? Uh, and it turns out that 63% of all the adult Christians they interviewed had come to faith between the ages of 4 and 14. They call it the 4-14 window, the time in our lives when we're most receptive to the good news of Jesus, where, where you're sharing the gospel is most likely to, to have an impact. And so if you're looking for a way to have an impact with your life, if you're looking for a way to... to just invest in something that would live on past you and well on into eternity, serving our kids' ministry or serving, uh, just introducing children or young people to Jesus would be a really smart thing to do. He's telling us something about Eutychus. Lastly, and I'll finish with this, he's telling us something about the church. And I think what he's telling us is that the church is both ordinary and mundane and also absolutely glorious. The great New Testament scholar of the last century, F.F. F. Bruce, who it turns out was born in Elgin and studied first of all in Aberdream, as we like to call it. Uh, he says this, that, that Luke's reference there in verse 7 to their coming together on the first day of the week to break bread is the earliest unambiguous evidence we have for the Christian practice of gathering together for worship on a Sunday. So just think about that for a moment. Up until this point, uh, we've seen often the, the, the early church gathering together in different moments, and we've seen them um, in the synagogue on the Sabbath. You know, and, and, and uh, at that time, uh, still today, the, the Jewish Sabbath is like Friday night into, into Saturday. So it's essentially a Saturday that is the main deal. And so they were doing most of their activity, most of their fellowship, most of their worship, most of their mission, on a Saturday, and then at some point or other, because we're not doing that anymore, are we? we m most Christians around the world meet and gather together on a Sunday. Why have we switched from a Saturday to a Sunday? Well, we don't really know, but it seems like this may have been the moment when it happened, or certainly this is one of the recorded times in the early church when they met together on a Sunday. Now, if that's right, the very first, this is the very first recorded Sunday service in the history of the church, and what I love about that is the very first recorded Sunday service in the history of the church was so completely boring that someone literally died of boredom. I love it. Up until the moment where Eutychus is raised from the dead, this is like totally ordinary. 
ultimately completely forgettable. And then the kingdom breaks in. And you know, it's like it goes from something that they would never have remembered to a moment that anyone who's there would never have forgotten. Somewhere along the line, I think in the last 20 or 30 years, we in the church in the Western world have come to believe that we need to make church as entertaining as possible. You know, so, so it's hard to imagine um, e- even just half a century ago, uh, you know, lights, smoke machines, lasers, uh, y- you know, like there's an expectation on, on preachers that we should be like part theologian, part stand-up comic, part, you know, like... It's like, we've got to be as entertaining as possible. I'm so sorry that you've come to our church where we're not particularly good at that. But, you know, like, I just, I, I, I just think that, that, that Paul and Timothy and these guys, they would look at what we're trying to do, you know, like just trying to be ever so entertaining. And they would say, what on earth are you doing? And they could point us to moments where, you know, like the Apostle Paul just went on and on and on and, where it was just utterly mundane and ordinary. So we weren't looking to be entertaining. We were looking for the glory of God. And the thing that marks this moment, and the reason perhaps why it's in the scriptures, is because an ordinary meeting became an unforgettable meeting when the power of God turned up. And it seems to me, you know, as we've journeyed through the book of Acts, and we're now closing that journey, It seems to me that there's a biblical vision for the gathered church that is incredibly inspiring. That we would gather together in all of our ordinariness and we would invite the presence of God, the power of God, the kingdom of God, the spirit of God to come and do his thing in a way that shapes all of our lives. You know, actually, I think that is the biblical vision that Luke has been laying out for us. Acts chapter 2. You you could do a whole teaching series on the rooms in the Bible. You know, Acts chapter 2, there they are. They're in the upper room. What are they doing? They're just waiting and praying. And then there are tongues of fire and the sound of a rushing wind. And none of their lives are ever the same again. Or Acts chapter 4, they've been threatened. They're intimidated. They're a bit scared. They pray together. The building shakes. Or Acts chapter 9, Peter goes into a room, an upper room, where a young girl has died. And he kneels at her bedside and he looks up to heaven and he prays. And then she opens her eyes. Or Acts chapter 10, Peter's in this conversation with Cornelius and his household. And they're just in this room there. Uh, And then suddenly, the Holy Spirit is poured out on everyone in the room. All heaven breaks loose and and nothing is ever the same for them or in one sense for the whole of humanity. I could go on and on, but my point is made. This isn't hype we're looking for. This isn't manipulation. This isn't smoke and mirrors. This isn't entertainment or the power of suggestion or showmanship. This is the real deal. This is an ordinary family looking for an extraordinary God to come and show his glory to us. That's what we're after. That's what our church is about. That's what we're longing for. And that's what we're praying for. Why don't we pray together?
Father, we, we know how ordinary we are. But we know that you do extraordinary things. So we pray, God, that you would come just like you promised. Jesus, you said, where there are two or three, I'll be there. Jesus, you said you'd never leave us or forsake us. Jesus, you said that you know, it was better for us that you go so that the Holy Spirit could come. And so, Jesus, we are asking you to send your spirit today. Show us your glory. Be present with us by your spirit, we pray. And wherever we are in the world, listening or watching to this, meet with us. Amen.